Bullshit. You're listening to the No BS Show. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich. Our guest today is Kiron O.D., who recently rejoined Horowitz, Rudoy, and Ropeman as a partner in the firm's accounting and auditing group. Auditing group. <laughs> so when it comes to messaging, we have to understand both our why, which is our reason for being, and our customer's why, which is their reason for buying. We then need to crystallize that into one big idea, one memorable message or theme that makes an emotional impact on our target audiences. So whether it's for you personally or your company, what's your big idea? I think for us right now, it's our company and what we're focusing on. You know, I'm new there and part of my charge is growth. So I'm helping the firm kind of build towards where we want to be. And you see a lot of different, you know, lawyers or accountants talk about, um, you know, we, we like to work with manufacturing companies or, or, you know, we specialize in personal injury law. I think for us, our firm, uh, our big idea is preserving client wealth. So no matter what industry you're in, no matter what your family situation is, we're looking to preserve client wealth. And I think we have uh, a great team in order to do that. And, and that means a lot of different things to different people. Some people are, you know, we live in Pittsburgh now where there's a, has always been a kind of an aging community. And, you know, as people grow older and own businesses, they have to decide what to do with that business. And a lot of these people either, um, you know, inherited that business from a family member or started this business. And, you know, to some people, that's their baby. And it's a, difficult decision to decide, you know, are my children able to run this? Do my children want to run this? Do I feel like I'm burdening them by bringing them back? Or have I groomed them and want to leave this business to them? But in either situation, our job is to preserve client wealth. So whether we help you maximize what you can sell your business for, or help you transition that business to the next generation, we have um, kind of built our service offerings around that. So we have valuation experts that can help you determine what your company might sell for. Personally, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I worked on the transaction side of BDO for, for a few years and even before that at Alpern Rosenthal. So I've seen a lot of companies for sale. I do consulting to help clients determine what they should be doing to prepare for a sale of their company two, three, four years down the road. Um, because you, you can't wake up one day and say, I want to sell my business and, and put it up for sale. There's a lot that goes into that. So the idea of preserving client wealth means setting up trust in estates, understanding the family situation, whether there are aging parents that might need care for, whether there are special needs children or grandchildren that might need um, services and, and other things. So really looking at our clients as a family unit and understanding how do we help them preserve client wealth in whatever fashion that is, that's our big idea. And that's really what we're driving forward and trying to accomplish. That's a great big idea, preserve client wealth. So I want to go down the path and I know there's no cookie cutter way. Every business is different. I just want to talk about a couple of different scenarios and just, just from my own learning standpoint, and I think it our audience might find it interesting. So let's take the, the, the average first-generation business. Um, when you're con consulting with a small to mid-market first-generation business and they're getting to where they're thinking of selling, just give your gut feel. Like what percentage end up going and having the second generation take it? What percentage end up selling it? Yeah, I think that number has decreased is what we've seen. So a lot of times in the past where family businesses got passed down from generation to generation, I think because of things like private equity, there's now more outlets to sell your company. And if you think back to 20 or 30 years ago, there wasn't a very robust public uh, 
public equity community. So what public equity, sorry, private equity community, what private equity does is comes in and looks at these family owned businesses and says, okay, the patriarch of the family wants out. Is there a strong management team behind him? That management team might not have the resources to buy out the owner. So the the private equity fund will fund the management team, give them some stock options. And, you know, private equity doesn't run companies. These guys invest in companies, but they don't come in on the day-to-day operations and run companies. So that that's one of the reasons we've seen less uh, generation transfer um, from from one family owner to the uh, next generation. And the, and the other is just the difference in the generations today. I mean, people today are more global. Uh, they tend to stay in one place less. So in the past where you had oh, my dad ran this company, and from the time I was 10 years old, I was expected to take over. That just doesn't happen today. And I think a lot of people realize that that's a a recipe for failure a lot of times because you have kids coming in that aren't equipped to take over this business because they didn't want to take over this business. There's resentment between family members sometimes. So I think in the past where we'd say maybe that was 70% of the time the business went on to the next generation, I think nowadays it's probably closer to 25 or 30%. Interesting. How often are you brought in to help preserve the wealth for a second generation, considering what to do with the third generation? That's starting to get more common now as some of these businesses get older in, in, in the Pittsburgh market. Um, I think we are an aging community, and I think there's different uh, different strategies. When you're going from the first generation to the second generation, they say a lot of times that's when businesses fail because the second generation wasn't really equipped to take that over. And so when you're now talking about bringing in a third generation, you really are have a in, very ingrained family business. So in those cases, sometimes we um, uh, counsel our clients to, to start leadership training for their um, third generation at a young age, get them involved in um, you know the sales side, the operations side, get them involved in organizations, trade organizations in that industry. Um, there's great organizations like YPO and Vistage also that you can bring that next generation in to get them some leadership training so that they're equipped to take over the business um, when the time is right. Great answer. We're with Kiron Odia of HRR. And he's a partner there, and we want him to pick a tool or tip that you'd offer that will help our audience tell their story, craft their message, or communicate to internal and external target audiences. It could be a tool like Google Trends to generate content ideas. It could be your favorite book, blog, or productivity resource, or a tip on how to approach their career, whatever you think might help our listeners. I think for me, and I'll give you my example because that's what I know best will work for me, I think the most important thing in my career for me was having a mentor. And I don't just mean picking a person and sticking with that person. I think at this point in my career, um, you know, I graduated college about 20 years ago. I've had three mentors and that's changed um, as my job changed. I think two of them were in the same organization, but as my job progressed within that organization, um, uh, my and my skills and my job and my responsibilities progressed, I think other people kind of met that that need. And it isn't something... Um, that you can set out day one and, and look at somebody and go that that guy's going to be my mentor. It's a it's a bit of a um, a relationship that you have to build over time. But having that person that you feel gives you genuine, honest feedback and can help you, and you think that when they give you advice, they're giving you advice that's best for you, not necessarily what's best for them, and not necessarily what's best for the company. Um, that really helps having a sounding board to be able to talk those items through and, and really flush out what you're we're trying to, to, to get to. Um, that's been invaluable for me in my career, and I, I would and, um, encourage everybody to, to find that type of relationship. So let's talk about how you found it the multiple times 
and how others might if they can't use the same path as you? I think for me, the first two mentors that I had were more tactical mentors. And what I mean by that is when you graduate college, um, you're really building a skill set. And, and, and again, my, my experience has always been in professional services, but at that point, I uh, liken it to an apprenticeship. You graduate college with some certain knowledge and skills, but you don't really have any practical application of that. So the first two mentors that I had in my career were more tacticians that taught me how to be a good accountant, taught me what it was like to make the hard decisions when you had to, um, when you had to stand up to a client and not let them push you around just because they were paying fees, when you had to stand up to um, – or, or be tough on a subordinate to, to get the best out of them. And then as I kind of progressed further in my career, the, the next mentor to me was somebody who helped me more with my professional development, my personal development, how to do, how to be a better professional, how to do marketing, how to do networking, how to get my name out in the community. And so I think as you develop and whether you're an engineer or an accountant, you, you'll find that right person in what you're working on. And that's why I say, I don't think you can have the same mentor your entire career as your skills develop, your needs will change and that person's advice will be different. I agree. I've had four or five people that have served in that role, thankfully. The thing that I would say is listening is how you find the mentor. You don't even really find them. It just happens. Um, I remember my first mentor was someone that when I was a teenager and through my college years, I had a part-time job and I just listened and I was like a sponge. And then he saw that and he wanted to help me more and more. And uh, so then he just helped me with personal growth. He helped me with this. And then like my second one was a guy who came in and was doing a turnaround. And I just went to him and said, here's what I think. What do you think? And I listened. And again, didn't know him from a can of paint. And within three months, he was becoming like a mentor. So I, the advice I would give to, t to piggyback on yours is, like the Seinfeld episode when they were joking about mentors, you know, if anyone goes back and we put that on the show notes, but they were making fun of mentors because in the late 90s, early 2000s, the phrase mentor was so big. You you don't necessarily set out and go, I am going to pick Dave Mastovich or Kieran to be my mentor. I'm going to pick Suzanne to be my mentor. If you do that, it's probably going to be fake. It's going to probably be bullshit. Yeah. If you meet someone and you listen and you're a sponge and you show gratitude, most good people will be flattered. I completely agree with that. I'd say we'd have to call bullshit on mentoring programs in general because we've had formal mentor programs at, at all the different firms I've worked at over the years, and they generally don't work. You can't assign a mentor. You can't dictate a mentor relationship. It's something that builds naturally, like you mentioned, and I think that's that's great observation. And you have to keep it, too. That first mentor uh, will hear this podcast, and he's remained a friend uh, and I trusted advisor since I was 17 years old, you know, and each of them, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've had another one as a guest here. And if you really appreciate, I'm going to get like uh, Dave Sweet here. I'm going to get all emotional, but, uh, <laughs> if you really appreciate that, uh, that relationship, it, it lasts forever and it's just something special. Yeah, I agree. I got to stop because I'm going to get all choked up. <laughs> so, uh, let's move on to something, uh, a little bit more of the pop culture segment. Let's, uh, hit the bullseye. I'll ask you to choose between two marketing or messaging classics. Tell me which one you like more and why, but you only have a few seconds to choose and hit the bullseye. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Now we're going to go over them and you got to kind of just uh, defend your decision. So Geico's Gecko or the Aflac Duck? Geico's Gecko. The duck's annoying. The Gecko's you know, he's, he's, he's multifaceted. You could put him in chaps. You could put him next to a car wreck. You could put him in all kinds of stuff. This guy's great. <laughs> 
since we both talk a lot of basketball, I love to tweak this to the guests. Um, this one's a tough one, I think. I, I hope you pondered a little bit. I know you only have a few seconds, but there was an old easy choice, and now might be a change choice. LeBron James or Steph Curry? Oh, I was kind of hoping he would go Michael Jordan because, I mean, I grew up in the 90s being a Jordan fan through and through. Well, let's do that. We'll go Michael Jordan, LeBron, then we'll do LeBron, Steph Curry. So Michael Jordan or LeBron? Oh, Michael Jordan by far. I mean, this guy was iconic. You know, before before Michael Jordan, it was short shorts. It was old hairy guys. It was Bill Lambeer, nasty (laughs) basketball. Michael Jordan brought it up. He brought the youth into the game. He brought excitement in the game. This guy stuck his tongue out. He flew all over the court. Michael Jordan by far. So then... If you had to pick between the two new ones, LeBron or Steph Curry? I, you know, I, I appreciate LeBron's game, but I don't have to go with Steph Curry. I think he does stuff that I couldn't imagine on a basketball court. And he's not a very big guy, but the ball handling skills, you know, the taking a shot and then turning his back before it even goes in the hoop. I mean, this this guy's amazing. He He's breathing life back into the NBA kind of the way Jordan did back in the day. It's amazing you say. I feel the same way, and it's been really tough for me because – uh, being a huge basketball guy, first, when people would talk about LeBron, I was like, yeah, he's really good, and he's probably the best of this generation, but let's not compare him to Michael. And then I kind of almost went full circle because he did start doing things where you could maybe get him into the discussion. But these people like my sons think it's actually a great argument that maybe LeBron, no, it's not really that close. Last year's finals gave me some respect for him. He took them and almost won with his two best guys hurt. But after last year and then this year, I'm begrudgingly sort of saying I'm leaning towards Curry, which is really hard for me. I'm a Cleveland Cavs guy. I go to a bunch of games. But like you said, he's changing the game. He's doing it with no body. And he's tiny. Right. And the shots are just ridiculous. And you can't stop his shot. When I try to teach young players today, I say, look at how he's creating space. And so it doesn't matter how tall you are if you can create space. I give him a lot of credit because in college he was a great shooter. His dad was a good shooter, you know, a three-point specialist in the NBA. And I think where he really stepped it up was he was just a shooter. And then, as you said, he learned how to create space, and he learned that, and you see it in the commercials, by learning how to handle the ball. So his ball handling skills give him the ability to step back, step forward, get people off balance. Because otherwise, if he was just a spot-up shooter, he'd just be an average player. Yep. But his ability to keep people off balance and create spaces really differentiates him. And part of the reason I bring those two up is it's from a content standpoint, from a messaging standpoint, content and messaging. Um, they both are different but successful. You talk about Steph's commercials. They're completely different than LeBron's. LeBron's, he's at a whole other level right now, messaging-wise and content-wise, being in the movie. He actually did a nice job in that movie, and his commercials are a little more iconic, almost to the level of Jordan-type commercials. Steph's commercials are pure basketball, but they're still pretty awesome the way he shows his workout and so forth. So he's improving as a message guy or as a content guy. Yeah. All right, next one. Miller Lite, tastes great, less filling, or I love you, man. You're still not getting my Bud Light. Miller Lite tastes great, less filling. I mean, I, I remember the original Miller Lite commercials with, and I don't, I don't remember all the names, but the Bob Eukers and the like, the old football guys, and because Miller Lite was supposedly, you know, the first light beer. Um, I just that sticks with me even twenty years later. Little things like spelling it L I T E, you know, made it stand out. Yeah, yeah, you see that even in in today's grammar when people try to spell, hey, you know, you're a little light on this or that. Right. Sometimes they get you know L I G H T and L I T E confused. Next one, nothing outlasts the Energizer or Intel Inside. Nothing outlasts the Energizer. I think the Energizer Bunny, for some reason, it it reminds me of Christmas. And I don't know if it's, you know, I got four kids, so every time we buy a toy, it needs batteries. But 
it, it just reminds me of Christmas. It reminds me of, of toys for the kids, and, and I, I like the message on the Energizer better. It's been around a long time, too. How about Doritos for the bold or Lay's Bet You Can't Eat Just One? Lay's Bet You Can't Eat Just One. I don't know why that sticks out. I mean, I think I probably like Doritos better, but uh, the, the Lay's seems for me to be a better remembrance. And then the last one, Progressive's Flow or Jake from State Farm? Oh, I think Jake from State Farm was catchy, but Progressive's Flow had long-term appeal. I mean, she's, she's stuck it out. She's made it through, you know, boat insurance, motorcycle insurance, accidents, the, uh, the price checker gun. I mean, she's been around for a long time, so they must have something there. Jake from State Farm was funny, but um, doesn't have the sticking power. All right. So now we move into the second pop culture segment, Sights and Sounds of Marketing. This episode's Sights and Sounds of Marketing starts with Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve, which was nominated for Best Video of the Year in 1998. So we'll look at 1998 beyond the song. And keep on what I do first is I take the song and kind of repurpose the lyrics and apply it to something about leadership, communication, content, marketing. And the song starts with, because it's a bittersweet symphony, this life, trying to make ends meet. You're a slave to the money, then you die. According to market research from the Conference Board, an organization known for the Consumer Confidence Index and the leading economic indicators, less than half of all Americans say they're satisfied with their jobs, down from 61% 20 years ago. Job satisfaction goes up slightly among those who earn the most, but still only to 52%. Why? I'm a million different people from one day to the next. There are a number of reasons cited as to why most Americans are unhappy with their jobs. Many are tied to self-awareness or the lack thereof. If you don't know who you are and what drives you, how can you change what you want to do in your career? So if you are a million different people from one day to the next, which I think we are not a million different people, we all have so many complexities. If we don't have the self-awareness, we're not going to know what we want to do and change in our career. The song says, no change, I can't change, I can't change, I can't change. It's true we can't change our value system or who we are. You know I'm a big predictive index guy, and we have natural needs and behaviors. But we all have natural abilities we often overlook because they come easily to us. You talked about how it's like magical that you can look at a financial statement and immediately get a sense of what's going on. But there's so many other things that each of us does naturally that we take for granted. So ask for help from others when it comes to identifying your strengths and how to parlay them into career opportunities. I'll take you down the only road I've ever been down. Many people end up doing things they're good at but don't enjoy. You said 75% of people that do public accounting end up leaving it after a couple years because they have to do the two years to get the CPA. But those that stay might be miserable. People drudge off to work at something that doesn't interest them. You've heard it a thousand times. Follow your heart. What drives you? What do you like? What are you good at? I say focus on your passion skills. These are things you're good at and enjoy doing. Develop a career plan to find a position that means something to you and make the commitment to reach it. Otherwise, you could look back with regret. Kieran, your thoughts on the theme of Bittersweet Symphony? I think that really rings true. And, and some of that comes through as a, as a dad. Um, you know, I have two teenage kids that are both in college. Um, and I always tried to tell them similar to what you just mentioned. You find something you love. Do something you love. Don't worry about money. If you love it, you'll be good at it and the money will come. So whether you're a school teacher or a girls basketball coach 
or the world's best investment banker, if you get up every morning and you're excited to go to work, um, the rewards will follow. People will recognize you. You'll move to the top of your career. You'll have the accolades that you desire, but you have to do something you like. And if you get up in the morning and you're miserable, it shows and it comes through in your job and you won't progress and you won't move on. So really be true to yourself. Uh, do something you love. I don't want to say don't worry about money because a lot of kids face college debts and you know things are expensive, but you can't make money the sole deciding factor in what it is you do. So whether you're at a big firm and want to go to a smaller firm, whether you're you know, a, a school teacher and want to become a college professor, you just have to find something you love and, 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 and chase after it. That's Kiran O'Dee, who recently rejoined Horowitz, Rudoy, and Ropeman as a partner in the firm's accounting and auditing group. Auditing group, as I've stumbled on that twice, both the first episode and the second episode. Other sights and sounds of 1998 include Think Outside the Bun, Taco Bell. Your thoughts? <laughs> that one was pretty good. Taco Bell's come up with some clever, clever phrases over the years. That one's pretty funny. Agreed. One of my all-time favorites. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. President Bill Clinton, when he was under oath, uh, being interviewed after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, he actually said, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. I mean, politicians over the years have given us some great catchphrases, you know. I did not inhale. I mean, Bill's been good for a He's few of these. He's got three of them. Yeah, He's got so. three. The other one is, I did, and that same year, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I'm going to call BS. Marcus. I'm going to call BS on that, Dave. Well, the reason that I bring up it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, is because we're talking about leadership and communication, and we as a company do a lot of crisis communication and issues management. And when you look at those three instances of messaging, he was able to survive it because of all kinds of other things, his passion, his love of the job, his actual intelligence, and his political skills. Uh, can hate him, can like him, whatever. His political skills were amazing. So he survived multiple times when he didn't do what we preach, which is be authentic and be honest. Doesn't mean you don't position yourself as best as you can, but the did not in hell is kind of insane. What What are you talking about? If you either had the joint in your hand or you didn't. But then the he went against his uh, PR people when he did the pounding of the fist. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, and he pointed that big wagging finger of his, and then you're done. You're backed in the corner. Then the what is, depends on what the meaning of the word is, is the only reason I'll give him okay on that one is he was legally trying to survive. So he used a legal term, and it's still nonsense, though. It's BS. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Well, come on. That's BS if it ever was. Let's move on to the next one. Larry Page and Sergey Brin misspelled Google when they started their little search engine experiment. A Google, G-O-O-G-O-L, is a big number, a one followed by 100 zeros. But it ended up G-O-O-G-L-E. So I guess the spelling of your name doesn't matter all that much if you're you're pretty awesome, but that's uh, what happened in 1998 when they started their little search engine experiment. I didn't know that. That's actually kind of interesting. I mean, I guess for those guys, it was all about the content and the product and who cares what, what it was called. Nowadays, you see companies come out with these names and it's like they try to be different with the names Yes, just because difference um, is something you remember. Like I was talking to someone this morning about sriracha sauce and how that all came to be. And, you know, the, the guy just kind of came up with the name because he wanted to put his sauce out there or something different. So mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, unintended consequences of marketing, you know, can really make your product prop. I always thought when they came out with Kobe beef, I thought they were talking about my man Kobe Bryant because I'm so <laughs> I'm so basketball biased. 
So we'll stay down the tech path. Microsoft releases Windows 98 and asks, where do you want to go today? Now, this is your peak years of fun and graduate college, and you were probably tech savvy. Probably still are, but I'm saying at that time, you're crazy tech savvy. Do you remember the where do you want to go today campaign? I do. And like like you said, I think at the time, that was really when tech started to boom. It's funny because I went to, to Robert Morris and I graduated in 98. And Robert Morris at that point was graduating two types of people, uh, accountants and IT majors. And all the talk then was the job market for IT majors was huge because of Y2K. And Y2K was coming. The whole world was going to stop. Your coffee makers weren't going to work. Nothing that was plugged in that had a clock was going to work. And Man, did that just fizzle. I mean, I, I don't think there was a blip that ever no. happened, but at the time Windows came out, IT was hot, and I just remember, you know, all through college the talk was, wow, these IT guys are getting twice as much as some of the accounting guys and starting salaries because of Y2K was coming and the, the world was going to end. So. Microsoft, to me, was not great at the messaging, at the content, at the marketing over the years, but this one they were. And when I say not great, if you compare them to Apple, it's not even a comparison as far as messaging and content. But they've had a couple home runs. And this one, where do you want to go today at that time, was fantastic because we were still just really learning the Internet. The Internet in 95, 96 started to become big. So in 98, to say that was really well done, really well done. The last Sights and Sounds of 1998 – that 70s show debuts were you a fan no i can't say i was but looking back on it now i'll actually i'll watch a rerun so at the time i never watched them live um i thought aston kutcher and i think danny masterson was the, the little hairy guy with yeah. the beard i just thought they were corny and i didn't like the show um but looking back on it now those guys and i love mila kunitz so oh uh, who does yeah so uh, she's just a great actress it's nothing to do with her appearance <laughs> Now I'll check out the reruns, those guys. A lot of the people in that show have gone on to do cool stuff. And so I think at the time maybe I didn't appreciate it. Um, I didn't appreciate the, the, the messaging of the 70s because I wasn't you know, yeah. around then. Yeah. But uh, I'll watch them now. A really interesting mess from a messaging standpoint when these shows are done over the years. Uh, what that show did was it was able to pull multiple audiences because if you were the adult at the time, if you had kids at that time, you could relate to you being the kids in the show so they could get adults and then the kids even though they weren't kids at that time can still relate to it's just a different thing that kids did so it's kind of a way to get almost the families involved with your messaging or your content so it was a uh, it was pretty well done so Kieran, how can listeners contact you if they would like to learn more about what you do oh definitely so you can email me at k-o-d-e-a at hrrcpa.com or check us out on our website. We uh, will be launching a new website shortly and that's hrrcpa.com. Um, and I appreciate being on the show today, Dave. Thank you for being on the show and thanks to our listeners for joining us for the No Bullshit Marketing Podcast. Visit nobullshitmarketing.biz, B-I-Z, for show notes plus additional marketing and messaging resources. Are you signed up for light reading? You'll receive valuable strategies every other week to improve your marketing and build your content. It really is light, intended to be read in two minutes or less, and it just might trigger bright ideas for you. To sign up, visit MassSolutions.biz. Remember, ask yourself, what's the big idea? And build your story around the answer. It's all about bold solutions, no BS.